Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad you had you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you, Dave? I'm good for now. I'm getting jabbed in about an hour and a half after this is over, though, so... Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I have anything to worry about, but it's um, getting the Johnson and Johnson shot. So, all right. Well, I've, um, I've survived two Pfizer's. So okay. got okay. my second Pfizer last weekend. Didn't really have any side effects other than a, a sore shoulder. So uh, I'm grateful for that. But we'll see. I'm, 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 I just wanted the quick one shot. Yeah. You know, one and done. And I never get flu shots. So it'll be interesting to see how this, uh, what, how my body reacts. So yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well. We'll check in. <laughs> right after we taped last week, Dave, Major League Baseball announced that it was removing the All-Star game from Atlanta in response to the new Georgia voting law that we talked about uh, quite extensively on our show last week. So we're going to lead off with, with the news on that front. And uh, you recall that the initial response was probably pretty encouraging to Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Um, if you read the article on the MLB website, um, which may not be the most objective reporting on this, but it included supportive quotes from Magic Johnson, LeBron James, Dave Roberts, Derek Jeter, uh, no quotes from anybody that thought it was a bad move, uh, even though you had Stacey Abrams, obviously a critic of the law, but who was on the record at that point as being against boycotts because of the economic impact. Uh, but interesting the way it's kind of played out in the days since. So, uh, it wasn't long before new Georgia Senator John Ossoff, among other Democratic leaders, started to raise those concerns about the economic consequences of the decision to take the All-Star game out of Atlanta. And then when you add to that the fact that they chose to put it in Denver, uh, you had all kinds of interesting questions that arose because you look at the Colorado voting laws, uh, they're not in any obvious way superior on the measures that Joe Biden would use or the, the critics of the Georgia voting law would use. So there really was nothing to it in terms of the substance, except that this seemed like it worked out pretty well politically, at least in the short term, with these second thoughts emerging on both the left and the right in the meantime. What, what, what do you make of how uh, Joe Biden and Rob Manfred landed that plane? Poorly. I think that that he ought to have done what I think we tried to do last week is, which is go through the bill and then see what it does and compare it to laws in other States. And um, instead of uh, I think ignorantly assuming uh, the worst uh, trying to figure out what was trying to be accomplished and, and, uh, and thereafter uh, prudently uh, being reticent in a response. And I, it's just not the way of, of the world right now. It's not the way of corporate America. And um, I think it was interesting this past week how that had shifted. And I wonder if that'll have an impact um, two weeks down the road, because you can see something like this happening really every month or so where there's going to be an opportunity where, you know, you get a bunch of people who are protesting X, Y, or Z and corporate America finds out about it and suggests, okay, we're not going here. We're not going there. So when will it end? And when will people get sick of being told what they ought to be doing, what right and wrong is uh, based upon what's happening around a corporate boardroom? Yeah, I don't expect that Republican threats of boycotts are going to make the difference. 
But I do think that if Democrats start looking at the economic impact that these boycotts are having on the community or the removal of business from the community, then you might start to see those, those boardrooms shifting their approach. And it was interesting that President Biden, even himself, you know, he was asked later on this question about the masters, kind of an absurd question. Should the masters be moved out of Georgia? <laughs> How are you going to do that? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a tournament held at a particular golf club. It's that golf club's tournament. Anyway, he didn't raise that concern, but he did frame the matter quite a bit differently and talk about the economic impact. So it seems like something's happened here where it's not obvious that the solution to the law you don't like is to pull everything out. And, and that, although it may not be for the best of reasons, seems to be at least a movement in the right direction uh, that might actually lead hopefully to an opening, like you said, for some rational discussion of the content of these laws rather than sort of immediate judgment on the law or the debate around the law and then actions that can't easily be undone. All right, well, with that, let's turn to our required reading. Dave, you're gonna lead us through the last part of part three of volume two of Democracy in America. So you remember that last week we were talking about the influence of democracy on the mores of Americans. We mentioned industry, commercialism, and all of those things that play a part in American life, and then how mores thereafter are made more mild, softer, simpler, or easier, given the influence of the equality of conditions. Well, as Tocqueville moves on in this part, he'll discuss two other kind of major ways that the equality of conditions has an effect upon the American life. First, dealing with the family, and second, dealing with, with matters of war. We won't get to his discussion of war because we want to move to the final part uh, of the work. But for today, let's take up his, the influence of democracy, in particular, on the family. I think it's really interesting, Matt, that when he begins this discussion, he talks about America in comparison to Rome, and in particular, how relations change between family members. Uh, most importantly, the relationship between a father and a son. So he's very, very interested at the beginning of this discussion. What is democracy going to do with regard to the authority of the father within a family? So he writes on page 559, in countries organized aristocratically and hierarchically, power is never directly addressed to the entirety of the governed. Since men are joined to one another, one limits oneself to guiding the first ones, the fathers, the rest follow. This applies to the family as to all associations that have a head. In aristocratic peoples, society knows to tell the truth, only the father. It holds the sons only by the hands of the father. It governs him and he governs them. The father, therefore, does not have only a natural right. He is given a political right to command. He is the author and the sustainer of the family. He is also its magistrate. In democracies where the arm of the government goes to seek each man, particularly in the midst of the crowd, to bend him in isolation to the common laws, it has no need of an intermediary like this. In the eyes of the law, the father is only an older and richer citizen than his sons. So here, Matt, what Tocqueville has told us is that as we move from an aristocracy to a democracy, the father's role as a leader is diminished because all are viewed as individuals playing a part in the political whole. Now, is that a good thing for politics? Well, I think 
the answer that Tocqueville is going to give us there is it depends upon the part that the individual will play within a political community. If that individual is someone who is educated, someone who is engaged, uh, someone who takes a great part in the ways of a society, the uh, activities, the choices it makes, it could be a wonderful thing because then, then you have the opportunity for a more individual involvement with that individual involvement, uh, better decisions being made. If, however, the individual, once given the opportunity to play a part in politics, does not take up that uh, opportunity with, um, with a willingness and a desire uh, to be a public presence, then what will happen, he'll argue, is that the state will become much like the father of the aristocratic age. What do you make of this argument? Well, I think there's a natural connection between having this aristocratic style household with a limited franchise where the male head of the household exercises that franchise on behalf of, of the household unit. And, and that's of course something that you, you see continuing into the democratic age of, of America. And, and the idea is that the household has a single interest which can be represented by a single person. But once you embrace a fully democratized understanding of the regime, then it becomes less obvious that there is a single interest and that that father can represent the interest of not only the, the sons, but also the daughters and the wife as well. And so as you move further along toward a more fully democratized society, uh, the way that interests vary and the way that the household begins to have a multiplicity of interests naturally leads to a broader political participation. Yeah, so I think you're spot on there, Matt, that he'll argue, right, that when you give these individuals the right to be uh, representatives of their own interests, you certainly have given them the opportunity to choose well, but you've also raised the bar. Uh, you've made, it's a very difficult thing to get a larger group of people to choose well. So here he finishes up the discussion saying that, well, there will be some benefits here, but they probably won't be social benefits. So he writes, I do not know if all in all society loses by this change, but I am brought to believe that the individual gains by it. I think that as mores and laws become more democratic, the relations of father and son become more intimate and sweeter. Rule and authority are met with less confidence and affection are often greater. And it seems that the natural bond tightens while the social bond is loosened. So there's something to be gained in the natural relationship between father and son, mother and daughter, um, parent and child. But socially, there's going to be a, a danger there. Well, in the next chapter, chapter nine, he moves on to the education of girls in the United States, and he suggests something similar. America as a Protestant country, he says, is a place where there is a deep desire among the powerful to educate all, uh, to give them uh, the education so that they can make the right choices. And that would be true of males and females. So here he suggests not only are we going to see greater individualism within the family, but we're go also going to see um, an extension of an expectation of all parties, male, female, in terms of their ability to be informed so that they can consent to making good decisions. A lot is done in the United States to do what? 
to educate women, knowing that they will be key decision makers. He writes, although Americans are a very religious people, they have not relied on religion alone to defend the virtue of woman. They have sought to arm her reason. In this, as in many other circumstances, they have followed the same method. They have first made incredible efforts to get individual independence to rule itself, and it is only when they have reached the last limits of human force that they have finally called religion to aid them. So a, a distinct effort made by the regime to educate young men and young women to get them ready for life in which they will consent to how they are lived. Yep. And if you go back to the beginning of the book, you remember that he points out that in Puritan New England, it was religion that was the impetus for education in the first place, right? That this is a, a fundamental precept of, of, of American Protestantism that people need to read, read the Bible. And so you want people to be able to read the Bible, they have to be literate. And you want them to be able to then teach their children the Bible, they have to be literate. And so the, the desire for education initially comes out of the theology of the people of New England, as he's talking about at the beginning of the work, and then becomes a buttress, that education, to that very religious life they hope to replicate from generation to generation. Right. And then the next stage of American development, that Puritan influence uh, might be replaced by, by what he talked about earlier, which is self-interest well understood, which is another reason why you'd very much want to continue on the education of your young men and women to prepare them for adulthood. It's a good thing for society if that's done. So here the, um, the religious impulse is moving into a utilitarian impulse, which may further move toward a commercial impulse, which is what he gets into in, in the next chapter. Uh, he talks about educating women. He talks about preparing them for making the choice uh, to be married to uh, this individual or that individual. But he suggests that there may be some problems at the end of the day if the family simply becomes a machine of, of, of self-interest. The Americans form at once a Puritan nation, you just noted, Matt, and a commercial people. Their religious beliefs, as well as their industrial habits, therefore bring them to exact from woman a self-abnegation and a continual sacrifice of her pleasures to her business that is rare to demand of her in Europe. So here the woman is given the opportunity to make a choice, is expected to make a good choice uh, because she's been educated as a, as a young lady. But when brought into the family, all of the choices that she makes will have to benefit the commercial well-being of the family. Now, uh, this, is, this is kind of interesting, right? Because you, know, you read many of the rejections of capitalism and of individualism that, that point to the unhappiness because you're just kind of part of a machine that's making things happen uh, and that it aims towards the material well-being of, of the, the overall uh, family unit. But are people happy at the end of the day uh, with that or is there a desire for more um, out of life? So Tocqueville is, is bringing this up as, as a question and I think that's kind of interesting because when you look further forward to the 1950s, 1960s, and, and the beginnings of the arguments that were made um, by um, early 20th century American feminists, they, they talk about the unhappiness right, of, a, of women having to kind of work for the ends of a family 
and having to make sacrifices that may be good for the family, but haven't in particular been good uh, for them as individuals. Yeah, I think one of the overall challenges that Tocqueville's working on as he lays out his understanding of the democratic family is, is the voluntaristic nature of it. And so you have this coming together of, of a man and a woman in forming a marriage that's not based on economic necessity. It's not based on family connections. You think about the way that aristocratic marriages are, are normally um, constructed around those kind of things. So there's something good about that, right? There's an opportunity to, to choose and to choose in a, in, a, in a freer way than in an aristocracy. But, but the choice is to enter into them uh, a relationship of, 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 of sacrifice. And, and that's the challenge, right? Is that if that sacrifice becomes unsatisfying, then, then what is it that, that keeps that marriage together? And this is, this is the, be- the downside of a voluntaristic relationship is that when that relationship no longer seems to be fulfilling my needs or the, 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 the love that brought us together uh, seems to have begun to fade or to fail, uh, then what is there that maintains that connection? In an aristocracy, we have an answer to that question. Uh, the answer is those those family connections that formed the marriage in the first place. Those those things remain, and the need to maintain that through future generations as well remains. But in the voluntaristic democratic family, at that point, people begin to wonder: Well, is there really anything more for me in this marriage? And of course, we see in, in the last fifty or seventy-five years the, the 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 rise of divorce as as the natural voluntaristic solution to the problems of a voluntaristic marriage. So choice is an improvement over chance, but choice without a recognition of duty could could lead to license. And I and I think that he he is noting this, and I think he's going to argue further on here that even though in, in a good way you're seeing Americans understand the equality of men and women, and men and women will complement one another. If they complement one another in a way that um, benefits the interest of, of both parties, you know, that, that could be a, a good thing. But if all the relationship is about is benefit, what happens, as you just said, if someone sees it no longer in their benefit uh, to continue on with that association? Uh, they can volunteer to associate and volunteer to disassociate. And I think that this is why, as he finishes up this discussion, He's, he's going to talk about the opportunity that is there for more human association to happen because human beings are able to make choices, but probably in all likelihood, uh, more um, dismemberment of society uh, taking place. They'll say the public society will grow larger, but private relations will uh, become more narrow um, as the system uh, extends out into the future. Yeah, we see a lot of different dimensions of that. I mean, you think, think about beyond questions of marriage and divorce, just the way that families spread themselves out. And you know, we can think about that as maybe the consequence of our modern economy and technologies, communication technology, transportation technology. But it's actually just begins with democracy. Because if there's no family estate to hold on to, and no family seat and you know, those deep roots in, in the local community that an aristocratic society encourages even in some ways demands, well, then if there's better opportunities somewhere else, you go and pursue those. And so the, 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 the ongoing relationship among family members is, again, it's, it's voluntaristic in every dimension. Uh, you have to kind of define your own terms of what it means once you're 
out of the household? How do you connect with brothers and sisters? How do you relate to, to parents now that you've started your own household? All, all these things are, are so much less defined in democratic society. And it can be a source of great pleasure because of that and joy because of that. But it can also be a source of, of great tension and a longing and unfulfilled desire as people find those family connections are weaker than they would desire. So for the adjacent reading for this week, we turn to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his book on education, uh, Meal. Uh, one of the interesting things when you talk about uh, Tocqueville and Rousseau is uh, Tocqueville uh, as said in letters he's written to friends that uh, there's only one individual that he reads daily, and, and that is Rousseau. So Rousseau uh, had a very deep impact on the way that uh, Tocqueville understood the world. You can kind of see this in many ways in, in Tocqueville's overall uh, assessment of the human condition and, and why things move as they do. Uh, Rousseau very much looks at uh, the state of nature and the state of human nature as something that is evolving, uh, something that is organic, uh, uh, much like evolutionary biology, uh, that there's no one permanent uh, static way of things, but things can start as one thing and become another. Uh, certainly that's the way that Tocqueville has described much of the world as it moves from an aristocratic age uh, to a democratic age. But what does Rousseau make on equality, education, et cetera. We know that Rousseau is famous uh, in his Discourse on Inequality for making the case that uh, men are born equal, but they are made unequal uh, by social artifice and uh, social construction. Uh, that as we move forward in history, uh, inequality becomes the rule. Well, is he as conscious of inequality between men and women? So here in Emile, he talks about uh, Sophie, uh, who is the counterpart of, of Emile. And he says that Sophie should be as truly a woman as Emile is a man. That is, she must possess all those characteristics of her species and her sex required to allow her to play her part in the physical and moral order. Thus, let us begin by examining the similarities and differences between her sex and our own. So for Rousseau, by nature, what are the differences between the sexes? What are the similarities between the sexes? And he says, where sex is concerned, woman and man are both complementary and different. The difficulty in comparing them lies in our inability to decide in either case what is due to sexual difference and what is not. So what he's going to take up here in this conversation of males and females and what makes them different by nature is the actual importance of the part that males and females play in reproduction. It's in the union of the sexes that we see, he thinks, what makes them alike and what makes them different. They can come together in a common end, which is the perpetuation of the species, but he argues that women right, are made differently than men. Women can give birth, whereas men cannot give birth. It's kind of interesting when I, I reread this uh, for this week's show, and I was, I don't know where I was, but I was listening to, to some podcasts over the last month, um, and uh, the individual was you know, taking up the case of um, what do we make of the whole transgendered you know, movement? And you know, what arguments uh, does it make that can stand and what arguments does it make that, that really are, are not supported uh, naturally? And the case study that the individual brought up uh, was Bruce 
now Caitlyn Jenner. And he said something interesting, I think it's tied back, Matt, to what Rousseau is, is arguing here. Um, Bruce Jenner may want to now identify uh, as a woman, but in identifying as a woman, could Bruce Jenner now, Caitlyn Jenner, make the claim that he is the mother of his children rather than the father of his children? Right. Well, I think what you're getting at and what Rousseau's getting at there is, is that there's a certain distinction right, between the sexes that's fundamental when it comes to, as you say, reproduction. And so there's the contribution that the male makes, the contribution that the woman makes, and that those are irreducible and exchangeable. Um, and so, right, this is, this is part of the challenge as we try to navigate this, these new theories about gender versus sex and the new language that goes along with that. Right? We're sort of forced either to, to say things that, that are absurd or, or to forget things that we have always known or to come up with new terminology that, that substitutes for, for the terms that we've always understood to have concrete meaning grounded in human nature. Yeah, and so it, it leads to the second point that he's going to make here. We're going to get to the education of women, according to Rousseau. But the second point that he makes is a really interesting point. He says, since the consequences of the sexual act are so different for the two sexes, is it natural that they should engage in it with equal boldness? How can one fail to see that when the share of each is so unequal, if reserve did not impose on one sex the moderation that nature imposes on the other, the result would be the destruction of both, and the human race would perish through the very means ordained for its continuance. Finally, um, for, for Rousseau, this is where uh, he is very, very uh, controversial. What does all, this all mean for the education of, of women? And it, Rousseau is interesting here because Rousseau will tell us that when you look at human greatness, when you look at human influence, the, the ability that men as men and that women as women have had upon human history, the truth of the matter, which is the great influence of women as mothers on the education of children, is overshadowed by what we think has been important over the last 3,000, 4,000 years. So he, he argues that by and large, women are both the fairer species, but the more influential sex within the species. And I think it's a really, really interesting point. So the, the part of that idea uh, that 18th century early feminists liked was the importance that uh, Rousseau placed upon women uh, in the overall educational experience. Uh, the part they found a, a detraction or undercutting of women is that um, women in Rousseau's scheme are more transactional. They're more um, instrumental. They, they fulfill a role for society, hence they must fulfill a role for men, uh, for the benefit of society, uh, by, but by making them kind of an object rather than subjects unto themselves, uh, you do a, a great disservice uh, to, to women as a sex. Well, and I think the, 
the way that it would work out that what Rousseau is describing is that this would be a job done within the home. And of course, that's where the controversy comes in and say mid 20th century second wave feminism is that ultimately satisfying. If, if the profound influence that a, a mother has over children, especially at a young age, when so much of, of the future character and, 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 and essential qualities of that child are being determined, I mean, it is, it's just simply um, undeniable that a, that a mother has that profound influence, but there's a, a, a new way of thinking about that that looks at that as somewhat condescending right? and, and not allowing, as you say, women to have their kind of own voice in the public square and in the, in the world of business and other areas and realms outside the home. And, and so um, this traditional understanding of women as, as the guardians of morals and the, the, the great educators of, of men and women in the home, cherished by many um, in, in 18th, 19th century, and, and of course before, but that, that's viewed um, negatively as you move along into the 20th century as something that's, again, I think condescending or at least failing to use the full value and range of value that women have yeah, and it really, I think, shows us the historical trajectory of how we view the importance of society uh, versus the importance of, of the individual. Uh, here, Rousseau, uh, near the end of his discussion of, of the education of women, uh, compares what he's offering here, which is you know, a complementary system in which you know, the women are the educators of men and women. Uh, they, uh, they are utilized uh, for the benefit of the family and for the um, benefit of uh, the, uh, the conjugal relationship, he sees that as an improvement over uh, Plato's earlier suggestion, perhaps tongue in cheek in the Republic, right? That there should be no individual families. So Rousseau wants to keep the individual family, but have it serve a societal goal. And now living in the 20th or 21st century, we're like, well, who cares really about societal goals? What we care about are individual rights, and uh, any individual as an individual being able to gain and acquire happiness uh, for their own person, uh, that, that life is about satisfying the interests of the individual rather than tending to the needs of, of society. So I think here, once again, we see Tocqueville's prophecy, right, that, that democracy will produce a greater emphasis upon individualism. And it's a big question whether or not that will be for the benefit uh, of people living in future centuries. Right. And of course, that individualism is something that then overflows into relations within the family. And so each member of the family is, is an individual who's, who's connected in some ways by, by formal and legal and as well as relations of affection, but also has to be their own center of autonomous judgment and pursuer of their own interests, uh, even if those interests not just are at the expense perhaps of, of some kind of social good that we can conceive of, but even the good of the family. It's difficult to prioritize that over the individual realization of some self-satisfaction. Yeah, so to, to close this discussion and to kind of see once again, Rousseau's influence upon Tocqueville, when he's discussing America in particular and the relations between men and women, he says on page 574, that there could be a danger, right, in not seeing natural differences uh, between the sex or applying those natural differences 
uh, to uh, how we operate within society. If a society like the American society gives both men and women the same functions, imposes the same duties on them, and accords them the same rights, mixes them in all things, labors, pleasures, affairs. And then he writes, one can easily conceive that in thus striving to equalize one sex with the other, one degrades them both. And that from this coarse mixture of nature's works, only weak men and disreputable women can ever emerge. So here, I think Tocqueville has, has been open to the yearnings of uh, democratic people, to the yearnings of individualism, but he's always mindful of, of what the greater social or societal effect uh, that uh, these changes are going to have. So what's our assignment for next week, Professor Corbin? We're moving now to the final uh, part of volume two on the influence that democratic ideas and sentiments exert on political society. So what I'd like us to do for next week is to read the first five chapters of part four. So that begins on page 639 and ends on page 660. And then we'll close out uh, with the final uh, 20 pages of the book uh, the following Friday. Sounds good. Well, with that, let's turn to the headlines. And, you know, the way we've been discussing, particularly the question of relations between men and women, one of the things that you see very clearly, even in the language of Rousseau and, and certainly implicit in that last quote that you gave from de Tocqueville is, is a complementary view of, of men and women. And really you go back and you find this to be the, the, the prevailing view across many centuries. Um, but now we've begun to see a, a different account of those relations and what's typically called an egalitarian account. And, and if you go back even to the period where de Tocqueville was on the American scene and, and the first wave of American feminism emerges around that time, in the 1840s, there it's, it's still a complementarian type of feminism. Of course, Women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton are, are arguing that women should be allowed to vote and arguing for reforms with respect to laws of divorce and property ownership and things of this sort, but also emphasizing the way that men and women are, are different. And in fact, arguing that politics will benefit from women voting just because of that, that there will be a, a different kind of voice. You're not just multiplying voices. It's, it's not just a question of respecting the individuality of women, but you're actually adding a, a new voice with new concerns to the public square. And so you will have different results in essence is what she's saying, not, not just results that are fair insofar as they're affirmed by a larger portion of the community, but actually different results will result from women being involved in, in politics in, in new ways. And so again, even this first wave of feminism assumes a kind of complementarity in the interests, the ideas, the personality um, of men and women and, and sees that as something that can come together to form a more just and, and good democratic society. And so it's interesting, right, because this is not the prevailing view today, uh, it's interesting that when you go back, say the last 50 or 75 years, as, as the modern second and third wave feminist movements have, have come on the scene, uh, you've had largely a rejection of that complementary view. And, and of course, in more recent years, and, and you've already begun to allude to this, Dave, um, even the biological distinctions between men and women 
are, are being challenged. And so, you know, we have the new language of, of sex versus gender. And there was an interesting instance of this in the last week or so uh, in a CNN article. South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem banned transgender girls and women from competing on women's sports teams at public high schools and colleges via a pair of executive orders issued Monday. And there's a little bit more about the details, skipping that. Though the two executive orders signed by Noam do not explicitly mention transgender athletes, they reference the supposed harm of the participation of males in women's athletics. An echo of the transphobic claim cited other similar legislative initiatives that transgender women are not women. The orders also reference biological sex, a disputed term that refers to the sex as listed on students' original birth certificates. It's not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth, and for some people, the sex listed on their original birth certificate is a misleading way of describing the body they have. While sex is a category that refers broadly to physiology, a person's gender is an innate sense of identity. The factors that go into determining the sex listed on a person's birth certificate may include anatomy, genetics, and hormones, and there is broad natural variation in each of these categories. For this reason, the language of biological sex as used in this legislation can be overly simplistic and misleading. Now, that's so, just- Was this a news piece or an opinion piece? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that's what's so striking. So this is just news, right? This is reporting on a couple of executive orders that don't really get a lot of description here, but we get a lot of lessons on the proper use of terms and what biological sex means and, and all these kind of things. Now, what's interesting, if you read the first version of this article, it was much more succinct, but it was also much more pointed. So what it, what it said originally was, it's not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth, and there is no consensus criteria for assigning sex at birth. Now, that last part uh, led to howls what? As, yeah, I mean, um, as, as people thought, I think we all have a pretty good idea um, when a baby is born, how, how we're going to assign uh, the sex of that child. Uh, a, a quick look is all that it takes. Uh, but um, there's, a, there's an ideology obviously at work here that, that is trying to change how we look at things that we can see with our own eyes and, and change the language that we use to describe things that are, that are plainly observable. So I think it's worth trying to work through this just a little bit and, and to see the, the political move that, that's being made. And, and one of them, this is consistent with what we've been talking about quite a bit this season, the emergence of, of the accusation of some uh, immoral language behavior idea as a substitute for an argument, right? So you know, that, that's where this begins because they point out the use of the term male um, and, and a concern of males competing in women's athletics. But even on the terms of the author of this article, there's a distinction right, between sex and gender. If we take that as, as given, then it should be allowable to talk about sex and it should be allowable to refer to somebody as biologically male. And look, we all know the underlying reality here. We, we, we all recognize that once boys and girls go through puberty and become young men and women, there is no competing on equal terms with them in athletic contests. But, but somehow we run into trouble in trying to recognize that underlying reality. And there's no way to dis debate the policy without violating the rules of, of a kind of language police that, that's being um, 
applied in this article? What, 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 what could the governor do? What could the governor say that would actually acknowledge the underlying reality and preserve the integrity of women's sports, which is the whole purpose of, of the executive order? I'm just worried, Matt, what this is going to do to the gender reveal industry. You know, will you no longer be able to have like smoke bombs that are pink or blue because you just can't tell? Will everything have to be purple? Just kind of, you hear where I'm going here with the gender reveal, right? The, the, the whole thing is is just on the, on the front basis of it, the inability to distinguish between a male and a female at birth. I think it's just, it, it's ludicrous. As you point out later on in, in competing in sports, the disadvantages that would be there uh, for for women if men were allowed to compete in those sports, I, I think, are, are so great. Uh, never mind other issues with you know, men going into women's bathrooms, et cetera. And I, I think you could leave open right the whole idea of you know gender identity, but still understand on this point the great problem with with the failure to recognize sex for what it is. Right, and and you can talk about as this article does, the fact that there are unusual cases, right? There are unusual cases where anatomy is ambiguous or where you know, hormones are not within the normal ranges and, and, and all that's fine. You have, of course, you have yeah. compassion in those situations and you do the best. Those are the hard cases that you work through in, in, a, in a reasonable way to try to find some accommodation. But it, you, you can't pretend that the exception is the rule. And to talk as if this is just some great mystery all of a sudden that for thousands of years, people have had no difficulty right, understanding boys versus girls from the moment they're born. And now all of a sudden this is fundamentally problematized in a way that we just, we, we can't even wrap our minds around. You know, you're not dealing in reality. And, and you're not doing anyone, anyone any favors by, by forcing this into some context where, where you've got people drawing these deep lines on both sides because you're just an unreasonable um, unwillingness to, to deal with nature and an unwillingness to then allow people to, to work through that without immediately going to the name calling, right? There's some kind of violence, verbal violence that's being committed if your your language is not just the language that the person who's furthest advanced in this theory demands that everybody adopt immediately. Yeah, agreed. I I'm a, I think you said it well that being reasonable or rational as to the differences between sex does not preclude you from being loving uh, thereafter uh, with, with the difficulty uh, that, that we know is there for, for, for many um, individuals born into this world. So they're, they're not mutually exclusive rationality, uh, reasonableness, uh, and uh, loving communion. All right. Well, with that, let's turn to the grade book. So this week would have been uh, tax day, Dave, April 15th, but uh, the IRS has pushed that back by a month. So if your taxes are still undone, as, as mine are, uh, got a little bit of time to still take care of that. But with that April 15th idea in mind, uh, we're going to take a look at three common conservative tax reforms um, and, and think about what grades you would assign those. All right. So first one for you, to zero out the capital gains tax. This, this one used to be a thing uh, back in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. Uh, now that the Republican Party is becoming the 
uh, anti-corporate party. This one's probably not going to be as quickly adopted, but uh, the idea basically is that uh, the taxes are a form of double taxation because corporations have already paid on their profits and that the price of a, uh, of a stock reflects in the long run its profitability. And so you're in essence asking a person to pay a tax on top of the tax the corporation has already paid. And of course that discourages investment, discourages savings. So Dave, what do you think? A plus. Uh, I, I think that uh, the double taxation argument is spot on. We don't do right by anyone, I believe, uh, by overly taxing gain. Yeah, I agree. I think on the merits, that one's a high grade. I think it's not likely to be uh, politically advocated at this stage. Again, I think with the kind of the, the realignment that's taking place, uh, Democrats who have become more resident to corporate interests, I think are not likely to go in this direction. And Republicans who might have uh, a Mitt Romney type, I think are, are falling out of favor. But I think on the merits, it remains a, a good tax reform. Second option, this one is more of a lively debate. So getting rid of the deduction for state taxes. Uh, now you recall that in the last tax reform bill, that deduction was capped at $10,000. Uh, for individuals. And of course, that was resisted rather strenuously by, by Democrats from wealthy high-tax states uh, like New York or, or California, where property taxes were state taxes, local city taxes, much higher than that. And so looking out for their, their constituents, but also perhaps more importantly, looking out for the option to keep raising taxes without having the full consequence of that be evident in the final tax bill of the people that live in those states, uh, Democrats have been looking for ways to, to lift that cap. Now, the Republican argument on the other side is, no, get rid of the deduction altogether because it creates a perverse incentive for states who are now able to raise taxes and to do so again without having any real consequence for the people of that state since they can deduct the taxes. Well, here I'd give this an A plus as well I, for just that reason that I think that there has to be a consequence to your tax policy at the state level. And if um, a deduction uh, minimizes that consequence, uh, then basically what the deduction is, is a subsidy for you know, bad policy making at the state level. Last proposal, increasing the child tax credit. So another one of those important provisions of the 2017 tax bill was increasing the child tax credit. And so you've got Republican senators like Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, who are in favor of increasing it further uh, up to $3,500 per child and $4,500 for young children. And, and the idea basically is to help families in general, but also from the standpoint of tax fairness to say, well, he's these families are the ones that are, are bearing the burden of raising the future taxpayers, those that are going to fund the government spending down the road. And so there ought to be some benefit to them to help compensate for the expense of raising children that, that has social consequence, social benefits for, for the government at large. My heart and my stable of five children, you don't want to say A plus on this, but there's just there's something about it that uh, I find 
wrong. I mean, not wrong, like morally wrong, but, but still kind of a, a gaming of the system a little bit. And I understand, right. That we, we need families, but um, I, I don't want government, uh, the government, the national government to get into the business of, of engineering more families through tax policies. And you know, I, I think, for example, like the $1,400, you know, per family member that's going out right now, well, you can say, okay, if you have a big family, like we do, it, it's great on, on one hand, but if it's going to change our behaviors or change the way that we um, work as a family uh, by, by inducing, um, kind of a dependence upon the government, then, then I don't think it's a good thing. So I'd give that more like, I, I'd want to say A, but I think at the end, it's just not a, a good policy. So I'll, I'll go more like C minus D plus. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm probably a little more favorable to it, but I think the, you know, there is that danger of using tax policy to, to favor this versus that. And, and kind of once you open up that door, right, well, then there's probably other groups that are going to have tax benefits or other behaviors that are going to have tax benefits associated with them. And of course, we know the, uh, these kind of things are voluminous in the tax code. So one response to that is, well, okay, let's at least promote something good. Uh, while there's other tax credits that are, that are maybe not so good or, or at least matters of indifference. Uh, but I think you're right. There's, there's, there's kind of a purity to the tax code. If you want to move toward a, you know, a nice flat tax kind of system, everyone pays the same rates. Well, that's exactly where I'm going, Matt. I mean, we uh, well, we both worked for Steve Forbes back in was it '96, um, and I, I I loved that proposal. I just thought, um, you know, make it flat, uh, and uh, there's there's just a equality to it. I think that that rings true to me at just on this point. But uh, that that's no longer around, is it? it? Tells you what's happened over the last you know 25 years. I mean, how many candidates are coming forward with flat tax proposals? Yeah, that used to be every four years somebody was was going there. But you're right, it's we haven't heard from that in a while. All right, we're going to wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball, as always. Uh, unfortunately, another rough week, Dave, when it came to uh, picking NCAA basketball games. Um, thankfully, that's all done. But you got one out of three, and I went zero for three. So that leaves us now. You're seventeen and twelve. It's still good, but remember those days of thirteen and three uh, seem seem quite a while ago before we started picking basketball. And I'm 11 and 18, which is getting into kind of the level you were at last fall. So we, we need some quick wins here. What great games though. That uh, they were, they were so much fun to watch that. I think that was the most fun I've had of viewing sports in 14 months. So that, that UCLA Gonzaga game was just out of this world. It was yeah. you know, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, it was incredible watching. If, if you weren't thinking about your picks or your bracket, which was thoroughly busted by that point, but yeah, just as, as pure sports entertainment and what a way for it to end that, that incredible 35 foot shot. So we're going to focus this week on golf. Uh, we mentioned the masters a little bit earlier and uh, so the masters of course were two rounds in and we're, we're taping late afternoon on Friday. So we know something about what's happened, but we don't know the results of the weekend. Obviously what we're going to do is pick, three pairs of players. And I'm going to ask you which of those players will do better in the end. Okay. And they're all, they're all currently tied after two rounds. So they're all essentially starting at the same point, but which of each of these pairs. And then I want as a kind of a bonus pick, I want your, your, your final winner uh, for the tournament as a whole. All right. So the first pair, uh, two Englishmen who are tied at even par, which is a very respectable score. Uh, the weather's not been great and the scores haven't been especially low this year, but Tommy Fleetwood, 
and Matthew Fitzpatrick. So which of those two will finish better, do you think, Dave? I'm going to have to go with Tommy, given that I like the band The Who. Um, so <laughs> okay. Tom, I'm going to go, nothing that has nothing to do with golf, but I'll, I'll say Tommy Fleetwood on that one. I thought you were going to say the hair, but okay. All right. Yeah, no, I'm going to take Fitzpatrick on that. A little bit younger. Uh, he hasn't really made his mark on the majors just yet, but I have a feeling this, this could be uh, you know, a strong finish, at least maybe a top 10 finish for him. All right, second pair, two guys who are, are big names and who had good days today, Justin Thomas and Tony Finau, both at minus four. Uh, right now, three shots off the lead, Justin Rose at minus seven. So both really contenders here. Which one do you think finishes better? I think Finau does. Uh, he had a great day today, so I, I think that carries through uh, the weekend. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give hit that one to him. All right. I'm going to agree with you on that. So we've got one where we're the same and one where we differ. And then lastly, third pairing, Jordan Spieth and Mark Leishman, both at minus five. Again, just now two shots off the lead. Yeah, I thought going into this week, uh, I watched Spieth last weekend and and he was great. That that Sunday to kind of see him get that win after four years was awesome. And just the the monkey um, off his back. And uh, when he's got it going, he's he's amazing. I just did uh, those approaches um, to, to the greens are just are great. So I, I'm going to go um, with Spieth and, and that's going to be my my winner as well. I think he wins two in a row. And um, he's back on track. Uh, and, and in the discussion of, uh, you know, some, one, some of the greatest golfers of all time. All right. Well, I'm going to agree with you on both those. I actually, we I picked before we had this conversation, but I, I think Spieth is playing well. You know, he had the triple bogey yesterday where he hit a ball into the woods and then uh, had a three putt after that. So if you can avoid that, that's been his Achilles heel the last couple of years is he's, you know, he's double bogey, triple bogeys. And of course, there's always the danger of one of those at Amen Corner coming in, uh, you know, on, on, on Sunday. But I think he manages to hold on and finishes uh, probably 12 or so under par. I'm going to guess that's going to be the winning score. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. We encourage you to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget we're on Instagram at Democracy in America Today. And you can reach us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Have a good week. Talk to you soon. 